He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in our presence this evening as we study your scriptures and pray that uh, you would minister to people exactly where they're at this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new here, we kind of just go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so here we are, Luke chapter 18, running through verses 9 through 14. As some of you know, I I wasn't here last week because my father-in-law passed away the Friday before last Sunday. John, my father-in-law, a week and a half ago, uh, went to be with Jesus. And, you know, I I can't judge whether his conversion was genuine or true. Only God knows that. But, you know, I I do have faith and belief and hope that John's faith was indeed genuine. In the morning service, I I shared about how my wife Katie and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with uh, John uh, the Monday before he died. And then my wife later corrected me and told me it was Tuesday. So... See, see, wives are just really good at things like that. You know, I'm just so spiritually and eternally minded that, you know, Monday, Tuesday, yeah, you know, a day is like a thousand years, you know, it's like, just kidding. She's just more accurate with things like that. And and so I, I, I just want to take this short time to thank those of you uh, who have been really encouraging to my wife and myself and ministering to my family and my kids and and I've heard stories from some of you how um, God worked right before your eyes because he answered uh, these prayers that I've been sharing with you that I've been saying with my family for the past year and how that all unfolded before your eyes. And God is just awesome that way. You know, God, God is a God who answers prayers uh, still. Now, for some of you, you, you don't know the story of my father-in-law. But it was back in April 29th, 2011. My in-laws were over at my house, and they were having dinner, and, and John was there, and he looked really, really sick. Uh, he, he was just really pale. He was just sitting at one of the seats at the table there, and, and he was unexplainably just losing weight um, for a few weeks, and he had no appetite there, and he just looked really, really bad. So that night, they actually went to the emergency department, and it wasn't too long after that that he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then he died on April 27th, 2012, almost exactly a year. And so there's something that is just really prophetic um, about the the prayers that my family prayed that I I just want to quickly share with you guys. Because back in December, when we were studying Luke chapter 13, we were studying about the fig tree, and I was sharing this with you guys. And let me just read this to you to put some of this in perspective. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And 
This next verse is what was so prophetic for my family as, as well as applicable to my family. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So from the time that we heard of John's diagnosis to his death was almost a year to the date. Right? He was sick at my house on April 27th. He died on the 29th. And it's actually even closer than that because it's a leap year. Right? So, I mean, it's even closer than that. And verse 8 has been my family's prayers for the entire year. That my kids and myself and my wife, we've been praying, God, let John alone this year also until we dig around him and we put on manure. God, just give us a year to work on him. Just give us a year. And he came through. He answered our prayers, and my kids and I, we, we prayed that a lot. We, we prayed for Grandpa almost every day about this, this past year. And so I, I bring this up for two reasons. One is that you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know that. And, and, and whether you have the opportunity to be alert enough or conscious enough to even receive the gospel before you die, you can't guarantee that. There's only one story of a deathbed conversion in the entire Bible. The guy on the cross next to Jesus hanging on the cross. That's the only time that there's a deathbed conversion. So don't wait. If you don't know Jesus this evening, is there any guarantee that you're not going to step out and not have a car accident or a heart attack? I mean, that that 26-year-old Olympian that died, I think he was from Norway or something like that, from a heart cardiac arrest. I mean, it, there's no guarantees. I mean, this guy was way in shape. And, and death can be so sudden that you don't always have the luxury of time. Second reason why I bring up this story of my father-in-law is that I think we often lose touch with what the Bible presents to us. I know that I do in what the Bible presents to me personally, that, that I lose touch of something until something so real, like my father-in-law's death, is staring me right at the face. And until something biblical is brought to the present to be experienced in the now, you just kind of read it as a story. So back in December when I was studying Luke chapter 13, that was real to me. God, thank you for giving that to me. That's something that we've been doing all along. We've been praying for a year, and I believe you're going to do that, so we're going to dig around my father-in-law, we're going to stick manure all over him, and he's going to come to you. I know it. And so that intercession for him was real. All of that stuff was real. But right now, it's even more real to me because of how the Lord has been answering those prayers and what he's done with my family. And so right now, I'm kind of emotionally spent and I'm kind of mentally spent. But really, I'm really on a spiritual high. To experience what God has been doing has just been really uplifting. You know, two weeks ago, I was sharing about prayer. And how I can still have peace in the middle of all this eternal uncertainty in regards to my father-in-law, in regards to my mom... But how God is so real to bring Luke chapter 13 into reality for me in the present. That that unfolded to me in the present. And how real God is to answer prayer for me and have me experience His peace that surpasses all understanding in the present. Some of you have shared with me how this has impacted you. And and, and in large part, it's because it's the Bible happening in real time. It is no longer just a story. 
Luke chapter 13 is no longer just a story, and it's no longer just a parable. It's something that your pastor went through. It's something that I could share with you. Yeah, we did that for a year. We asked for that. And almost to the day, he allowed that. So as we read tonight's parable, let's look at this parable so that it does indeed impact us, that it's not just simply a story. Let's not read this simply as a story. But let's put ourselves in the sandals of the very audience hearing this parable from Jesus' lips because the way they received it is very different from how we read them today. So let's attempt to experience the way they heard the story. And putting yourself in their sandals is going to be a challenging thing because times were so different back then. The culture was so different back then. So let me read the parable and then I'm going to paraphrase it. And the parable goes like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the other, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is just my paraphrase. It's not biblical. Two guys went into the church to pray. One, someone who grew up in the church. He knew all the rituals about communion and where to put the tithe and all that stuff. He knew all the worship songs. He knew all the Bible stories. He served in the church. And the other guy was a guy who didn't look like he knew God at all. And so the consistent churchgoer prayed, thanking God that he wasn't like other people. He didn't sleep around with his girlfriend. He didn't get drunk. He didn't get high. He didn't hang out with the wrong crowd. He wasn't like this guy who looked really ungodly. In fact, he was really spiritually disciplined. He consistently prayed, fasted, studied, gave of his money. Everything a good religious guy was to do, he did. But the guy who didn't seem spiritual at all was in the back of the corner of the church. His heart ached for how he was in rebellion to God, and he couldn't even bring himself to look up because he was so broken. He could only bring himself to say, God, I'm in need of your mercy. I'm a sinner. The guy who looked ungodly, not the churchgoer, went home right with God. Spiritual pride and arrogance will be the downfall of the religious, but the humble, God will lift up. Now, have you ever met that uh, religious churchgoer type? I was that guy. I have to confess to you. I was that guy. And I still actually might be that guy, so I'm apologizing to you in advance. But essentially, what we have in this parable are two people... Two prayers and two purposes. Verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus told this parable because there were people listening to Him that were there in that day who were completely certain that they were spiritually fine. That they were just totally convinced that their religiousness satiated any needs for God. Now, does this sound familiar to anyone? How many people sitting in church services today on a Sunday are like this? How many people want no part of church because those people are in the church and they're turned off by religious hypocrisy? See, there are a lot of people that do not want to come into church. And there's a reason for that. They're not all lying. Some of them 
are legitimate. I know some of them are just excuses and they're not valid claims, but for some of them it's an absolute truth. They do not want to come here because there's something wrong with people that come to church. Now, if this weren't true, Jesus wouldn't address it in this parable. Because it was happening back then. Those religious folks were misrepresenting God and it was happening back then. So there were people back in Jesus' day, just like there are people in our day, who are just spiritually sluggish. They're just spiritual slugs. Right? So, so Jesus was rousing those in the crowd who fit this description because He cared. He cared about those religious slugs. Like me, He cares about me. And if you're a religious slug here this evening, He cares about you. And that's why He told this parable to these completely two different types of people. So they could either put themselves in the sandals of this religious churchgoer type, or they could be put in the sandals of this perceived ungodly guy. And then anything in the spectrum there, you're going to fit in somewhere. We're going to take the two extremes. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, whenever the term Pharisee is used, I think that many people in our day tend to think that a Pharisee is bad. They're not put in a positive light, are they? But let's put ourselves in that audience that Jesus was speaking to. Because did a Pharisee have a negative connotation to that audience? No. In fact, they were looked up to, right? They, they weren't thought of as bad guys back then like we do. Because we, now we have the stories and we look back and we're like, oh, that's a bad guy. Back then, those are good guys. No one would have ever thought anything negative about them. To that audience that Jesus was speaking to, a Pharisee was a consistent churchgoer who studied their Bible, who knew their Bible. They had several Bible apps on their Android or their Apple product. And in fact, they had more than the free apps. They actually spent money to buy apps because, you know, all the languages that were free aren't enough and and all the different translations aren't enough. And You know how it's such a helpful tool. It's really helped me in my Chinese and Spanish because I just kind of press the audio Bible. And and since I know that story, oh, that's how you say salvation in that language. But, you know, it's an awesome thing. I don't spend money on Bible apps, though. But you guys have probably experienced this with religious people. The same experience that I've experienced. That they're jerks. Right? I see so many people nodding their head. We can be honest here. It's church. We can be honest. Some of the biggest jerks I've ever met in my life are the people that have the most marked up Bibles I've ever seen. The same people that own that Bible are the biggest jerks I've ever met. And so their Bibles look like a Indiana Jones map, right? There's like lines here, and there's a star here, and an arrow here, and triangles, and then there's a yellow highlight, and then there's this hot pink highlight, and there's neon green here, and all this stuff. It's totally marked up, and they've obviously studied it, but they're obviously jerks too. And I'm not saying that studying and marking your Bible and all that stuff is a bad thing. I'm just saying that if you do that, at least act like Jesus. Just just act like Jesus. If you're going to do that, don't act like a self-righteous jerk. It's like the dude that's on the freeway and he's cutting people off and he's flipping people off and, and when you come in from him, he slams on this thing and he's honking the horn and then you come behind him and there's like a fish on there. You're like, come on, dude. We have to be careful about our testimonies, right? So if you have something that identifies you as a follower of Jesus, the least you could do is act like him. So the Pharisees knew their scriptures. And they were thought to be really good people who knew the law. They were religious leaders who were also philanthropic people. 
They were very giving, except they wanted people to know that they were giving. And they were, check out how much money I give. And they were civic leaders. They were very involved in their communities. And they had this lifestyle that people really admired. You know, they walked by and like, oh, look at that guy. He knows his Bible. He knows the law. And he serves his community. And he gives to the poor. And he gives alms and all this kind of stuff. And, and they like that. They, they like to be noticed for their prayer life and for their charity and for their knowledge. Man, they just soaked all that stuff in. They're like, oh, yes, this is making my head bigger. I love it. You know, like, oh, this is so good. And it's probably not all that different from today. Right? People that kind of like to get noticed about their religious devotion, whether it's like in worship, like, oh, check me out. I'm worshiping. My hands are up. And, or I'm, I'm kneeling or whatever, or in prayer, like, oh, look at that person. Their eyes are just closed like this and they're praying, but really they're just taking a nap or something. Or, or you know, oh, how I serve and all this other stuff. And then there's this tax collector. Essentially a traitor to his people, who stole from his people. Now, there's an organization called New Day for Children that I'm really involved with. It's a rescue center for girls freed from sexual abuse for commercial purposes. And there are girls in that home. I think we have about 14 girls there now. There are a few of them that are there who were sold by their mothers. They were sold into prostitution by their mothers. So you talk about betrayal and you talk about stealing from your own. Do you find that disgusting to hear that a mother can sell her child to be a sex slave? How can a mother betray her daughter like that? How can a mother steal from her own daughter? It's a revolting thing, isn't it? And so the people back in Jesus' day had this disgust towards tax collectors because they betrayed their own people working for the Roman government, working for the very government that was oppressing them. And they were stealing from their own people because they actually collected more than they needed on the taxes. They collected what they paid to Rome, but anything in excess of that, they kind of just put in their own pockets. And so they lived large. You know, they, they, they were living a large life. And so to be a tax collector, it, it was a disgrace. That's a disgraceful job. Much like being a pimp for little girls. You know, I've met pimps who are kind of proud to do what they're kind of do, but I've never met one that's proud to pimp around little girls. The ones that are like, hey, you know, I look at them, that's my stable, and, you know, I got the, and they're all like adults, but none of them parade around saying like, oh, yeah, look at my 11-year-old stable. They don't do that. In May 2009, the National Report on Domestic Minor Sex Trafficking reported that the average age of entry for a minor exploited in sex trafficking was 12 to 14 years old. 12 to 14. And then two weeks ago, I was at a workshop to bring awareness about New Day for Children as well as the CASE Act. And by the way, the CASE Act will will be on the ballot, so vote for that. And if you don't know what the CASE Act did, caseact.org. Look it up. Now, some of you are probably wondering, like, Pastor Albert, you know, separation of church and state, you can't say things like that from the pulpit. If we as a church do not stand for injustices such as these and do something about it, can we really call ourselves followers of Jesus? Can we do that? We have to take a stand. We have to say these things. And besides, my attorney friend said it's okay too. You know, I already already checked. So they said I could do this. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Now, while at the workshop... Uh, it was shared that the average age has dropped. It used to be 12 to 14. It's now 11 to 13. 
Eleven. Eleven years old. Vote. Back to tax collectors. They were despised people. Their testimonies were not accepted in court. People that had a verbal contract with them, they didn't have to honor them. Their alms could not be accepted in places of worship. People hated them. People just saw them coming and they they were disgusting to them. They were revolting. And so, put yourself in the shoes of a tax collector and imagine how you would receive spirituality. How would you receive God if God people were the ones spitting at you and hating you and found you disgusting and all that kind of stuff? How would you be as a tax collector? You would be far from God. Yes, what you were doing was revolting and disgusting, but the church sure wasn't helping. Right? And so these guys were pushed out, their hearts got hardened towards God, and they became bitter, and they distanced themselves from any spiritual community. There's a reason why this is brought up, because in Luke chapter 19, we're going to hit a story of a guy named Zacchaeus. And we'll get to that sometime next year, probably. Now, keep in mind that when we deal with tax collectors of our time, the pimps of these 11-year-old girls. Jesus reached out to both. He reached out to both. In Jesus' parable, He gave us two extremes, right? The, The Pharisees, whom people admired, and He gave us the tax collectors who people found disgusting, revolting. Pharisees who were the model of enlightened people, tax collectors who were the bottom feeders of life. Like, no one wants to be down there. And if we were to put these two people on stage, a religious goer and a pimp of minors, and we would take a vote as to who would go to heaven, I think most people would vote that the religious churchgoer and not this pimp would stand a chance. But the thing is, Jesus loved both. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now what's happening here? The Pharisee went up to the temple to feel good about himself. How many of you come to church because it makes you feel good about yourself? And that's not necessarily a good place to be. And it's not that I want you to feel bad about yourself when you walk in here either, right? It's not like, whoa. I actually hope that you feel good coming to church, but how many of you are actually fooling yourselves to believe that everything is fine with you because you're coming to church? Everything is spiritually fine with you because you showed up on a Sunday. And when you come to church, what do you pray about when you're here? Because what you pray about reveals a lot about your heart. What did the Pharisee pray? He prayed about his self-righteousness. He prayed about himself. It seems that he's actually praying to himself. This guy is just full of self. And there he is, standing by himself, no doubt standing in a place of recognition, probably like right there. It's so good that none of you are right here, because then I could use you as an example. You're Pharisee! And he's thinking about himself. And he says, check me out. I'm in the front, and check me out. Like I'm praying and everything. And now let's take a closer look at his prayer. Notice that he focused on negative reinforcement. We all know what positive reinforcement is. We're told about this on how to interact with children and how to teach them. But this guy is using negative reinforcement. Look at what he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not. See, his obedience to God is focused on the negative. 
Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. He's looking to justify himself by telling himself of the sins that he has not done, which is a dangerous thing to do because what it does is it clouds up the sins that you have committed and that you need to repent of. If you're just thinking about the things you haven't done, you're not thinking about the things that you have done. And so this guy is just trying to make himself feel good by pointing out that what he hasn't done, and he's not addressing what he really needs to address in order to be right with God. Secondly, look at how he used comparison as a tool for justification. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Justification has nothing to do with how much alike we are to another person in our sins. We're not judged on a scale of sinfulness. One sin is not a one and another one is a ten in the eyes of a holy God. We are justified through Jesus and God's grace upon us through His Son. You're no better than me. I'm no better than you. We're all sinners. And we're only saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled into thinking that just because you're in church and there are a bunch of people who are worse than you, that you're better. You're no better off if you don't have Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And we must deal with our own sinfulness. May we not justify ourselves by looking at what we do well and neglect where we fall short. May we not justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people and saying, you know what, at least I'm not like that. I don't do that. We need to take an honest look at ourselves before a holy God. The scale of 1 to 10, it's all the same before a holy God. And lastly, take a look at how legalistic this guy is. He has his spiritual statistic line already right here in verse 12, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, this is another way to justify ourselves and not really deal with repentance. First, we we focus on sinful things that we don't do instead of the sinful things that we do do, which is truly do-do. And secondly, we compare. And then thirdly, we get all legalistic about the good things that we do. Now, some of us are kind of OCD on these religious aspects of our life, but really it's just a cover-up to repentance that needs to really happen in your life. You're living in sin and you know it, but you're just covering it up with this religious legality like coming to church, like fasting, like tithing, like serving, like just doing religious stuff, when all the while you need to repent. Jesus wants you to repent. He doesn't want your religiosity. The religious rituals that you're going through are not what He wants out of a relationship with you. Even if they're really spiritually disciplined. That's not what he's after. He doesn't want your disciplined rituals. He wants you. He wants you. So stop covering up what you need to repent of with all this religious legalism. And you know what? Sometimes it medicates some things, right? You, you do like a good religious thing, like you give or you serve, and, and it kind of medicates things. It makes you feel good for a time being and you're doing things. But you're not confronting what God is speaking in your life and you can't medicate that forever. You need to repent of that thing, not just pay alms or do penance or something like that. We need to live in reality and not a medicated world. And we live in a medicated world. Oh, you suffer with this? Take that. 
You have anxiety, take that. Oh, your kid's acting up, take that. He's too hyper, take that. And we just, we're just medicating our world. We need to live in truth. And not live in a world solely reliant on feelings, absent fact, because feelings can be misleading. Especially if the facts don't line up with the feelings. Because take a look at the Pharisee who felt really good about his church attendance. He felt really good about what he didn't do. He felt really good about himself in comparison to others. He felt his religious statistics line was good. And all of those feelings were inaccurate in gauging where his soul was actually heading. But he felt good. See, church is not about feeling good about yourself. Again, I I do hope that this place is a place you get encouragement and support and and empowerment, but I also hope that this is a place where true repentance happens. Where rebuke is accepted because we do it in love. And we're not condemning you and we're not judging you. We love you. But we need to tell you the truth. Where repentance is free-flowing and this community is not judgmental and condemning you for the things that you are struggling with. But it's not all about feeling positive. Because how many of you like to be rebuked? How many of you like to be corrected? This does not feel good. But may we be open to to doing that. It's not all about feeling good. That is not reality. The reality is that growth is often painful. That progress often hurts. So let's not paint this picture of a Christian life that everything within the Christian life is positive. Because if that is so, then why did Jesus die on the cross? I don't find that to be a feel-good thing. That is a suffering, painful, hurtful thing. See, feelings aren't always accurate and true. And we must live in reality because our spiritual lives are at stake. And that is truth. If we all cared about good feelings... We actually might harm somebody because that's not what reality calls for. If you were given a medical diagnosis that required a painful procedure in order to save your life, like a transplant. I have a cousin who's gone through several kidney transplants and it is a painful thing. He's gone through a couple of them. Now if his health practitioner went to him and and withheld the information to spare him the pain and just said, "Eh, don't worry about it, just keep going on through life, he'd be dead. A good health practitioner would tell you, and they would say, this is going to save your life, but it's going to hurt. You're going to be in a lot of pain, you're going to go through a lot of rehab, you're going to go through a lot of complications, and it's going to hurt. So you go to the doctor, and you tell the doctor, hey doc, it's nice to see you again. You know, I'm, I'm here for my regular checkup, and you know, I've been meaning to thank you for looking out for me because, you know, I, I was just out in your waiting room, and I saw your other patients, and they're a mess. Me, I, I'm okay, but those guys, unhealthy. There's a guy there, I, I smelled the smoke on him. He, he smokes like a chimney, and there's some, there's some other people there, they're, they're obese. They're huge overeaters. You can tell they don't work out, and I, I even saw this one dude, he's both. Like, he's, he's big and he smokes. And so that guy needs some serious help. But me, I'm, I'm healthy. You know why? I work out several times a week. I get lots of rest and I eat really well. I'm stress-free. I do everything right. I, I'm good. But you know what? All of that may be inaccurate when the physician runs some tests and he finds that you have a brain tumor. 
If your lab work, if your biopsy, if your MRI doesn't match how you feel or look, that is just not reality. The reality is that you might have cancer, that you might have diabetes, that you might have some disease where you may look fine and you may feel fine, but in fact you are sick. Even if you go to the medical clinic regularly. So some of you may think you're fine because you come to church regularly. And everything's fine on the outside and and you're thinking, you know, there are some things that I don't do that would be harmful to me. I don't do those things. I don't sleep around. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't get plastered with alcohol. I don't do it. And then you start comparing yourself to others like, I can't believe that. Why don't the homeless people do something for themselves? Why don't they get a job? Why don't they get an education? Why don't they go do this? And you start comparing yourself. I'm not that bad. I mean, look at that guy. That guy's like... He's, he's on crack. It's obvious. And look at, he's on meth. Look at his teeth. And you start comparing yourself and you justify yourself with these types of damaging thoughts. And to top it all off, you give yourself this religious stat line. How much you give? You know, I tithe and I tithe on gross. And how much you serve and that you're on a home group and that you read your Bible and that you pray and you go to the prayer meetings and you convince yourself that you're spiritually healthy because you have this religious stat line. But the thing is, is you might not be. Jesus might just have an x-ray for you that shows you something different because he sees through all of that stuff. He's like, um, huge tumor. You might feel good and you might look good and you might have the religious stat line, you might do all this stuff, but... Things aren't looking so good for you. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Interesting thing here is what's the setting here? What is the temple? We were told that they went to the temple to pray. But what happens at the temple? Sacrifice. Sacrifices. Because at the death of a sacrifice, there is the carrying away of sin through that blood and that death, that sacrifice. There's also the redirecting of God's wrath towards sin. That's why there was sacrifice. So religious goody two-shoes that was right up front here is standing up front boasting about how great he is to himself while the tax collector guy is back in the corner knowing that he is guilty and he has this stack of evidence of proof that he is guilty and there's no way out unless someone outside of himself clears him of that guilt. But he's not going to be able to do it on his own. You can't. Because the wages of sin is death. If you want to clear your own sin... You die. It's death. The only way for your sin to be cleared by someone else is if that person is sinless. That that is a worthy sacrifice because if they are sinful, when they die, they just clear their own death, not yours. So the sinless sacrifice, which Jesus, the the Lamb of God, there's no chance at having a relationship with the Holy God based on yourself. Because if you did, if you sacrificed yourself, you would be dead. You have no relationship. Now keep in mind that the setting is at the temple. And so there's this blood-stained altar there. Reminding this tax collector of death. It's blood. It's, It's a bloody altar. The wages of sin is death. And I think this is why the tax collector couldn't lift up his eyes to heaven and he beat his breast because he understood the cost because he saw the altar full of blood. He understood that sin is paid through blood and the only way to pay is through death. So he's asking God for mercy. 
He's not asking God to forget his sin because God cannot overlook your sin. God is a God of justice. He can't just brush it off. The tax collector knew his sin called for blood and he's asking for mercy. And that mercy is through Jesus Christ who paid for our sin through his blood. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the only worthy appeasement for our sins because he was the only one who was sinless. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At the beginning of the sermon, I brought up the death of my father-in-law for a couple of reasons. One was because I think we've, we've just lost touch in terms of parables and what they are saying to us. That we just read them as stories and, and we don't really apply them to us. And the second reason is that we don't know when we're going to die. And I shared with you that there's only one deathbed conversion in the entire Bible. It's in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 through 43. And it reads this. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the only one. That's the only one. I've had the privilege to be at several deathbed conversion opportunities myself. My paternal grandmother was one where when she was dying, we were called and my dad and I, we, we flew to China and I was just praying the whole time, God, just, just give me enough time so that I can share the gospel with her again because she, she's not accepted you. And so while we were flying there, he did give us that opportunity and I believe that she truly accepted Jesus in the hospital. She couldn't even communicate. She, she could only blink. So I just told her grandma, yes is one blink. And if you blink twice, it's no. And I just shared the gospel with her that way. And she blinked once. And I was just like, thank God. And I got to share also with my grandfather-in-law, my father-in-law who just passed his father. I don't know about him. He didn't do it with me. I mean, I, I'm praying that he did at some point when I wasn't there. But I don't know. My maternal grandfather, he was in the emergency room. So I was called. I was living in L.A. at the time, and he was in San Diego. And when I was called, I just bolted down there. I was just praying to God, God, just give me some time. Just, just give me a chance to share with him again. Just give me a chance. And so when I was there, he was totally out of it. But I shared with him anyway because I've heard that people can hear what's going on around them even if they're not responding. So I just shared with him. But I really don't know. And then my father-in-law, who I hope is with Jesus now, who God gave us a whole year. And last Tuesday, he said yes. But the odds for a deathbed conversion aren't good if the Bible is only giving us one. There's only one. So my plea to you this evening is that you don't wait. If you don't know Jesus this evening and you're here, you are not here by accident. It is time to repent and accept Jesus' death on the cross for you to redeem you of your sins. In our parable, we have two people, we have two prayers, we have two purposes. Are you arrogant and self-righteous to where you really don't need God? Telling yourself that you're good enough, or are you the person who approaches God in humility like the tax collector? What's your purpose to coming to church? To just check off that you came? To show others that you're religious and to feel better about yourself? Or, or does it bring you to the foot of the cross where Jesus paid for your sins? 
When is the last time you asked for God's mercy? Have you confessed to God that you are indeed a sinner and you are in need of Jesus who takes away the sins of the world? Jesus, the only atoning sacrifice for you, who who paid for our sins once and for all for those who believe in him. Hopefully you're not like the Pharisee who is depending on himself, depending on his piety, his reputation, his morality to earn him a place in heaven because that is impossible. It's impossible because it's not enough. It's never enough. That's what sin does. It makes what you do for you. That's it. You can't do it for anybody else. It's your death and that's it. What is causing you to do things your way when God has provided a way for you? Your way doesn't work. Whether you go ultra-religious or you go ultra-secular, it it doesn't work. The whole gamut. It's, It's only through Jesus. And maybe it gives you community. Maybe it makes you feel good about yourself to come to church. But don't let church be this obstacle to your relationship with Jesus. Is He really your Savior? Have you asked Him? Have you asked Jesus whether all is good with your relationship with him or are you the patient who goes to the doctor telling your doctor that you know everything's good with me when in reality it's not because you really don't know when you go through a physical you go through the lab test you take that blood draw you you do all these different tests how you feel and how you look may be different from what's really going on so how do you really find out you ask your doctor You ask them, and then they examine you more closely. They run tests, and they go beyond what they see and beyond what you feel. Have you asked Jesus to do that for you? To give you a real diagnosis of your spiritual health? Ask Him, and He will reveal it to you. He will give you that x-ray. Get the real prognosis before it's too late. Get the real prognosis. Live in what's true, not what you've made up for yourself. And this goes for whether you feel great about your Christian life or you feel horrible about your Christian life. What is true? Because some of you, I know that you might feel that you are the most pathetic Christian because you can't do anything right in the eyes of God. At least you feel that. That you feel you're you're just a complete sinner and you can't get things right. But is that true? Is that reality? Because did the tax collector feel good? Just like the Pharisee did feel good, the tax collector did not feel good. But is that accurate too? He didn't feel good. But he knew the reality of his sin and his need of God's mercy. So some of you may feel like hypocrites. Some of you may feel like, you know what, I'm the worst Christian to ever accept Jesus in my life. The fact is is that you are a Christian though. And you feel like you're living this false spiritual life because it's not consistent with what you perceive as a Christian life, but it's not all about feelings. It's not even about living a good Christian life. That's not Christianity. The tax collector does not get right with God because of feelings or the religious things he did. He got right with God because he saw his sin. He recognized it. He saw the x-ray. And he saw for what it was. And he knew that only God could give him mercy for that. And I think that's why some of us struggle with our Christian lives. Because we don't feel it. Or we feel unworthy to call ourselves followers of Jesus. And what we need to understand is that you are in bondage to sin. 
that sin is a real thing. So is the freedom through Jesus Christ. That is a real thing. Don't forget that either. To know that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. John chapter 8, verse 36. It's not that you feel free. It's that you are free. You're free. It's not about your feelings. Yes, feelings are important. But if you are completely dependent on feelings, what will happen to you? You'll find that it will dictate whether or not you're excited about being a Christian. The feelings will dictate that to you, not your relationship with Jesus. That is inaccurate. You will find that it will dictate whether you find joy in worship or not. You will find that it will dictate whether you are assured of your salvation or you're not. It will dictate your enthusiasm to share the gospel or not share the gospel. Yes, feelings are real, but that doesn't change the fact that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So live free. You are not dictated by your feelings. You know what needs to happen. You look at the tax collector. He's humble. He's broken. He's repentant. He's seeking God's mercy. Why does he do that? What happens after he does all this? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, the pimp of minors was justified. Not the Pharisee, not the churchgoer. Isn't that shocking to you? What? The pimp is justified? This is the shock to the audience listening to this story from Jesus. What? The tax collector's justified? Are you kidding me? But see, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. It's not about these two characters. The Pharisee looked at himself while the tax collector couldn't even look up. But his heart was directed towards God. It's about Jesus. It's about God's mercy. It's not about our self-righteousness and what we do. There's no way for us to justify ourselves. If we try to justify ourselves, what we end up doing is we just end up digging a deeper hole. It's all about God's mercy. So when is the last time that you asked for God's mercy to pardon you from your sins? Acknowledging that we are sinners and that Jesus is our Savior. Asking Him to reveal to us the reality of how we are, our spiritual health, and directing our feelings in that reality rather than fooling ourselves with these feelings that may be misguided that are telling us that we're okay when we're really not. Because aren't some of you tired of playing the religious game? You're just kind of coming to the church and you're just kind of reading your Bible and you're just kind of just doing the thing and it's just kind of like this... Circular thing. You're just doing your thing. Stop. Stop. Stop doing. Start believing. Stop doing stuff though. Because you can't start doing until you really believe. You can't substitute religious actions for belief. You have to first believe. And then you act upon that belief. You don't fake it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But you first must believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, for any of us who are struggling to be like a Pharisee or even struggling to be like a tax collector. Lord, we need you. 
We're in need of your mercy. We ask God that you would transform our lives so that we would indeed have a real relationship with you and stop playing religious games. In Jesus' name, amen.